What's going on, everybody? It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. I'm Todd Golden with my brother, Matt Golden. Matt, how's life in Wisconsin? Not too bad. Um, been inside for the last couple nights because of various protests and stuff. So, Are people uh, protesting the Packers draft? They might possibly be doing that somewhere. <laughs> people upset about them drafting another quarterback, but no, not really. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's so it's about George Floyd. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the hotbed of activism uh, place I live in, there's also been a few protests. Not nothing that's required a curfew or anything like that. There's been a little bit of activity, which for where I live is significant because there's very rarely political, overt political activity here anyway. So, um, so that's been interesting. I did exercise my right as an American citizen uh, to vote. Okay. Uh, I voted like four times. Is that legal? Uh, no, no, probably oh. not. <laughs> All right, whatever. Um, so I've also been fighting off a couple ailments this week, which have been a pain in the ass, nothing life-threatening. And I'm on a little bit of medicine right now. So like, if I start talking about why um, the blanket can talk to me and has its own civilization, then you'll know, <laughs> that, then you'll know the medicine um, might be having a weird effect on me. Yeah, or it could just be you being yourself. So. The blankets have their own civilization, or if I start getting paranoid about bricks, because I remember reading an article that bricks were taking over the world. It's in a publication called The Onion. Okay, okay. A trustworthy <laughs> news source, and Great. bricks are watching us at all times, just so you know. that That's, well, there's some truth to that. <laughs> I mean, I'm right next to some bricks in my fireplace right now, and uh, they're always keeping an eye on me. <laughs> anyway, um, enough bullshit. Uh, Matt, if I'm to describe the chart that you picked this week in kind of parliamentary procedure, procedure, procedure type, <laughs> procedure type terms, I would say this chart eats ass. It was... <laughs> The worst one I think we've ever had in terms of just garbage songs. My, uh, not speaking for you, but on my side, the batting average for good songs was like 100 on this. And the chart we're talking about is the alternative chart from June 1st, 1996. Matt, fire away on what made this one the one to go to this week. Because to be fair, we haven't really done this this era yet. Right. Um, well, I picked this not for the music itself, but for the date. Um, this was a week before I graduated high school and technically I was done with classes. Um, in Ohio, they had proficiency tests. And if you passed all four parts of the proficiency tests, um, you're exempt from the finals. So I got like an extra week off. So I was off this week and I actually know what both of us were doing on the day oh, yeah? this chart was released. What, what was I doing? We were in. We were both in Cincinnati, and we were watching a Reds game. Okay, who'd they play? Um, the Atlanta Braves. Oh, okay, so this was okay. I remember that. This was your uh, sort of uh, informal campus visit. Right. To, right. To yeah. Yeah. Okay, I remember that. We stayed at some shithole ass Fairfield Inn on the north side of Cincinnati, and um, 
almost caught a home run from Fred McGriff, if I remember right. Yeah, yep, yep. Fred McGriff did hit a home run, and Javi Lopez did also. Yeah, but the Braves, who pitched Greg Maddox, if memory serves, got beat, didn't they? Yeah, three to two, three to two. Actually, I've seen a lot of great pitchers lose, or or because. I, the only time I ever saw Mariano Rivera for the Yankees, he blew a save. And I mean, shit, that only happened, you know, a handful of times ever. And this was like peak era Mariano Rivera, too, like late 2000s. And mm-hmm. he blew a save against a horseshit Kansas City Royals team. So hmm. goes to show you never know. But um, so we were listening to these songs going down to Cincinnati, right? Probably. I'm, I'm assuming we yeah. did, at least on part of the trip. Probably not. We were probably listening to whatever tapes I had at the time. <laughs> probably more like uh, it. I, but... I forget if we took your car or mine, because my car didn't have a tape player. Don't recall. But <laughs> anyway, let's get into this beast. And uh, you get to start with number 40, a band very much at their peak in America anyway, Wonderwall by oasis and I, I was i was shocked to see this one on the charts still i mean this was it's 25th week on the charts so i i mean I, and i thought always think of this as being like in the winter of 95 96 but um still on the charts in june and um the song is named after an obscure george harrison soundtrack for uh, the 1968 film Wonderwall, and obviously the Oasis, Oasis are huge Beatles fans, so making a lot of Beatles references and cough Beatles copycats. Oh wait, <laughs> did I let that out? Uh, yes, yes, he did. But um, originally, Noel Gallagher claimed that he wrote this song about his wife, but um, he changed his mind about that after they got a divorce. And he's claiming now that it's about an imaginary friend, which I doubt that. My guess is that he was drunk when he said both things. So they're probably both uh, inaccurate. Pretty, pretty, pretty much. And um, it was a, it did make it to the top 10 and the hot 100 in the U S made it to number eight. Um, it's number one on this chart for 10 weeks. Jesus Christ. And um, number two in the UK, and it was kept off the top of the UK by the actor duo Robson and Jerome. And Jerome from Robson and Jerome is best known in the States for playing Bronn in Game of Thrones. So, um, but um, kind of, I mean, kind of an iconic song, kind of Oasis's signature song. I mean, you still hear it on the radio a lot. And, um, yeah, that's Wonderwall. <laughs> well, Oasis to me was, you know, let, let me explain where I was at in 1996. I would have been, by this point, I, I had just graduated from college, like a month before this, like right. officially graduated. I was actually done with classes in December of the previous year. And then it's a long story, but university I attended screwed up my transcript and I had to take like one more class. So technically I should have graduated in 95, but um, so, but you know, I was at a stage where this is definitely the line of demarcation for me where, I mean, I was 25, no, I was 24 
um, at this time. And for me, this is where I started to kind of tune out from like wanting to keep up with music. Oasis was one of the bands that it's like they were so hyped up at the time and, and they were popular. It was like, okay, I need to try to keep up with their sound. And I don't hate Oasis or anything, but I was like, I'm just not seeing it, you know? So this is the point for me in my life where I really started to be like, yeah, like charts kind of, you know, even the alternative chart. It's like this, they're tuning me out. I'm being pushed off the reservation in terms of, you know, being relevant in terms of my musical taste. So mm-hmm. um, Oasis, it wasn't bad. I mean, there, there was God, this song is freaking uh, Hey Jude compared to most of the bullshit on this chart. But, um, <laughs> right. you know, it, it's still, you know, for me that they're one of those bands. That I, I kind of mark time with them and Alanis Morissette and stuff like that. That's like, OK, that's the period where I started to be like, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to start listening to uh you know either obscure or genre type stuff i hadn't listened to yet i wasn't too far away from my funk phase at this point yeah yeah so but see but number 39 for you here is howland maggie with alcohol wow how appropriate since we went on a road trip from northeast ohio to southwest ohio at the time howland maggie is from columbus ohio Hmm. um alcohol is pretty much a typical kind of alternative song from the mid nineties where, um, you know, it's pretty nondescript. I mean, it's basically the, the vocals are the guy, uh, and that the song is about addiction to alcohol. It's not like celebrating alcohol necessarily, but most of the song is just the, the lead singer of Holland Maggie going alcohol, alcohol, <laughs> like over like a kind of a either low tune electric guitar or, or acoustic <laughs> it's pretty pro forma i mean the, the other thing that bugs me about music from this period is that alternative music was definitely in its period of commercialization at this point too where it wasn't really as vital as it was in the early part of the 90s <laughs> and this band is a pretty good example of that um just very bland friendly radio friendly um alternative stuff so mm-hmm. but the lead singer the good news is he looks like sheldon from the big bang theory oh okay okay so this is i i mean that's good news i i don't really care for the big bang theory but i figure that'd be some good news for somebody <laughs> yeah yeah so the way i described this was ponderous is what i wrote down for this song <laughs> okay, okay stone temple pilots light is the other way i put it <laughs> l-i-t-e so um so that was the and howland maggie really didn't have much of a staying power after this so right yeah yeah i hardly remember them you should go get the box set <laughs> it's probably like one cd no it's like one song um <laughs> Next up for you, Matt, number 38 is Inside by Patty Rothberg. Yeah, I skipping this. I didn't really remember it at all until I listened to it again. And it's it's not really much to say about it. So just skipping so you, that. You didn't get inside? No, no. <laughs> okay. But 37 for you is Seven Mary 3 with Water's Edge. Jason Ross, the lead singer of Seven Mary 3 might have one of the most annoying voices of all time in rock and roll. 
this was where yeah. um, you started to see the trend of scream uh, choruses. This is not scream core or anything like that, but this is where the, you know, started to become in vogue to just, you know, scream the chorus of the song. And I don't know when people decided it was cool that that was like, that that was cool at all. Like the kind of vaguely, that definitely came more into vogue as the nineties went along, but just that angry shouting, the chorus was like what people wanted to hear. I don't know what was in the water at the time. You know, you know, we've talked, we talked about that before when we did the 2000 chart. Mm -hmm. I really don't know why people were miserable at this stage of the (laughs) nineties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would love to teleport back to 1996 right about now, but. Oh yeah. um, Yeah. Seven Mary three. Um, they, they suck. That's pretty much all I have to say. Pretty much. Yeah. They're bad. So. Moving on, number 36 is Only Happy When It Rains by Garbage. Local heroes. Yes, sort of from Madison, kind of. Yep, probably the most successful band to ever come out of Madison. Though Steve Miller and Boss Skaggs did go to UW, so they might have a claim on that too. But it was formed by Butch Vig, who obviously famous for being Nirvana's producer, Smashing Pumpkins, other people as well. With um, Duke Erickson and Steve Marker, um, they all formed Smart Studios here in Madison, which uh, went out of business about 10 years ago, but kind of a legendary alternative studio, and it's in a really nondescript building, too. The building's still there, but um, Vig and Erickson have been bandmates before in Spooner and Firetown, and... Um, they're all producers or engineers, and um, they started doing remixes for people. And um, the remixes were a little bit poppier than what they had been doing with like various grunge bands, but they enjoyed doing it, so they just decided to um, build a band around that sound. And that ended up becoming garbage, and um, Shirley Manson was recruited from Scottish band called Angelfish. Um, Steve Marker saw one of their videos on 120 Minutes and um, thought that she'd be perfect for the band because she kind of had a Chrissy Hind quality to her voice. And that was kind of what they were going for or what they wanted for the lead singer. But um, this song is pretty upbeat pop song about being depressed since we just kind of talked about it it's kind of poking fun at all the songs that were coming out at the time that were just doom and gloom for the sake of being doom and gloom yes yes so garbage was on they were at my point of zeitgeist at this point right and um the video for this is very 90s um if i had to point out like any video to show to somebody and say, this is what videos were like in the mid nineties. I'd probably show them this. Oh, you just wait. I got one much later on the countdown that also embodies it, but go ahead. Okay. But garbage are kind of standing in a filthy abandoned warehouse. Practically every nineties alternative video had like a filthy warehouse in it. Yep. Bad lighting. Like usually like, uh, fluorescent or track lighting 
Right. And all the guys in the band are wearing like really heavy makeup for some reason. And occasionally you get like shots of kids playing out of the rain and like weird, like kind of creepy looking costumes. And um, occasionally you get like shots of the guys just destroying their instruments with um, like old Victorian area era tools for some reason. Yeah, that was big too, that all that kind of industrial revolution type imagery. Yeah, yeah, but um but yeah, it's I mean, basically all the ni- mid 90s videos clichés were in this one. <laughs> I worked in a lot of warehouses in the 90s and I never once saw an alternative band in any of them. It pisses me off. Right, yeah. I saw some I saw some rats <laughs> and I used to lay on top of big giant piles of toilet paper at one of the food distribution warehouses I worked at. That was pretty cool. (laughs) I got to do some cool shit in there that like is straight out of like a dream. Like Uh, seriously, I climbed to the top of like, it was like a a one story high pile of toilet paper. And I was just like, I want to see what it's like to sit up on top, lay up on top of this thing. And I did. Okay. (laughs) So I've done it. (laughs) <laughs> but I take issue with you, Matt, about your Madison musician list, because I'm looking at a list of famous musicians from Madison. Okay. Now, you've seriously discounted Nick Hexum, the lead vocalist of 311. Uh, Investigate 311. I, I, I think Matt. of him as being more Omaha. I, I, no. also, I also forgot Jane Weedland, who I think might still live here. Yeah, Jane Weedland is, that's a legitimate fuck up on your part. And also... You definitely forgot about Bongzilla. Bongzilla. <laughs> I, I also forgot about old school, the eight-year-old punk band. Oh, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about them. They were from the 90s, right? Um, yeah, very early 90s. Like, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, God, they were from Madison. Cool. <laughs> but, anyway, <laughs> um, let's move on to 35 here, which is... Um, Green Day with Brain Stew Jaded. Well, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of early Green Day because I thought they were a bunch of posers, especially Billy Joe, the lead singer. But this is probably the first Green Day song I actually didn't mind because it actually rocks. And, uh, you know, it has those power chord, you know, it's kind of a staccato type of and um, it was cool. And it had much less punk. It doesn't really have any punk posturing in it at all, unlike most of their early singles. So this is where I was like, okay, I can tolerate this song from Green Day. This isn't as bad as their early, their other early songs. So this is one. This is one of the few bass hits in this countdown, I think, from Green Day. Um, so what do you think of this song? I, I think it's aged a lot better than some of their other songs from the nineties. I, I don't mind this one. It's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. So thumbs up to green day for that one. I'm still not a huge green day fan. I can't believe they're in the rock and roll hall of fame. I don't get that at all, but well, that's cause I, yeah, <laughs> I'm an old, old man yelling at a cloud. Um, number 34 for you, Matt uh, flood by jars of clay. Yeah, this is a skip. This is actual Christian rock. So, why didn't you actually break down the Christianity in it? Well, I knew that they're a Christian rock band. 
So it's and you're, I, you're, <laughs> maybe if you would have listened to the song, you'd be more holy. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Yeah, you didn't think about that, did you? No, no. <laughs> but, In your face. But thirty-three for you is Imperial Drag with Boy or a Girl. Glam rock, Matt. Yep. The lead singer for Imperial Drag looks like what would happen if Eric Carmen and Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks had a baby, which that's not a compliment. That's really kind of horrific. But it's it's a pretty cool song, but this was it's glam rock and the glam revival that I remember anyway from the nineties was more rooted in the earlier part of the decade and most of it was out of England. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of the glam bands that, you know, none of all, virtually none of them got big here. Um, but we're talking about 1996 and the glam movement, the glam revival in England. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what the hell was the band that was really hyped out of England in the early nineties glam wise. Um, suede possibly. Wait, God, I keep thinking it was sweet for some reason. I'm <laughs> stupid, but, um, you know, we're like almost five, four or five years removed from that, from that period. And that period didn't make it in America. So, um, you know, kind of like original glam, the glam revival didn't really make it here either. It's, it's a cool song though. I mean, it, it is, it is basically glam rock. Um, but unfortunately, American ears never seem, they seem to be retrospectively into glam, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. in the 70s, only a couple of songs broke through. I mean, even David Bowie didn't have that many hits from his glam period. That's all retrospectively respected after the fact. Like, um, Suffragette City was not a big hit uh-huh. um, okay, at all. So, I don't know. We just never seem to be in tune with uh with glam at least as you know as uk glam anyway so right it's not bad it's okay yeah yeah it's it's, it's okay so for you matt number 32 is what do i have to do by stabbing westward this this is a skip um these guys were basically just nine inch nails ripoffs and um probably the least essential band to ever have an essential collection so <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there, but it's a skip. I wonder when they say they're stabbing westward, are they stabbing as in like striving westward or are they stabbing at people who live in the West? I, I, I think it's there. I think they're stabbing at people who live in the West, like the West as in like Europe and us or West coast. I, I don't know. Come on, man. <laughs> but anyway, um, 31 for you is The Cure with Mint Car. Well, this is more up-tempo than the usual Cure Fair, which is a good thing with The Cure. I think when The Cure decided to go up-tempo, they were 10 times more listenable than they were when they were droning out some, you know, I want to kill myself type song. Um, Robert Smith's vocals are not, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of Robert Smith and his vocals. So he almost always comes off annoying to me, but like I said, I I'll, I'll edge this over to the good, good cure side of songs. Um, it's one of their last has to be one of their last chart appearances. Cause I was surprised to see the cure on this chart. Cause 
the Cures fans have always been very loyal. Um, so I guess that part of it didn't surprise me that they would be able to drive a song into the charts, but they just seem to be a random kind of almost artifact that doesn't belong. Cause I, I don't associate the cure with the nineties much at all. They're more like late eighties, but yeah, here they are. Right. Yeah. So, and mint car would be, um, I, I, I could handle having a mint car. That'd be kind of cool. Is it like a car made out of mint or is it like mint colored? Both. <laughs> okay. It could, with both. it could be like light green and you could lick it and it would give you good breath. <laughs> okay. Okay. So moving on for you, Matt, number 30 is Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins. See, I ended up getting a copy of this album a week after this. This was one of my graduation presents. And I later ended up selling it because I I don't think I listened to it at all after 1996. Who gave it to you as a graduation present? It was either, I might have been Bridget. It might have been you, actually, too. Way to go. <laughs> I don't remember doing that. I don't remember ever buying a Smashing Pumpkins album. So, <laughs> uh, It might not have been you then. I think I bought you uh, Kiss Alive for Electric Boogaloo. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, this song's best known for most people for its video um which is an homage to the silent film a trip to the moon and the original concept was an homage to busby berkeley but they had to scrap that when they found out that the red hot chili peppers um did their own busby berkeley homage in one of their videos so they had to change plans but um one thing that I was surprised is that the video stars Tom Kenny and Jill Talley from Mr. Show. And they're the couple that flies to the moon and fights to, fights with the moon men. And how they ended up in the video is that um, the directors of this also directed Mr. Show. So they just kind of just told them to come to the set and they ended up starring it in Tom Kenny. Um, it's probably most famous now for being the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Yep. So, so SpongeBob Smashing Pumpkins connection there. But um, the song was recorded with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. It has a lot of strings in it. And not the first time that the Smashing Pumpkins did that. They also did it with Disarmed off of Siamese Dream. But... Um, it's aged a lot better than the other songs from, or other singles from um, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, one of which we're going to be coming up to in a little bit here. But um, I mean, it's, it's, it's decent. It ended up being kind of a sizable hit on this chart. Um, made it up to number five, um, crossed over to Hot 100, made it to 36 there. And it also won six video music awards. So, see um, to me, I'm sorry. Um, to me, this is where I started to turn against Smashing Pumpkins because I, I just thought this song was pretentious and the video was really pretentious, and that's where I like kind of turned away. Um, the other song you're referring to, 
it probably is better than that but yeah uh, yeah you know one song that isn't on here 1979 was that's a pretty good song i still like that song that one's that one's decent yeah um but this is where i was like "Eh." and then the whole melancholy 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 and infinite sadness was like okay that's pretty pretentious album title too i'm like uh no (laughs) well i mean i mean they got worse later on oh i know they did i mean but that was (laughs) the first signal it was like because their early part of their career they were you know they always had a little bit of a bombastic bent to them but it was interesting um but you but i guess by the time i was the age i was i and i'd listened to enough of the Ovoir of classic rock bands who kind of got a little full of themselves too and i was like hmm this would be the moment where smashing pumpkins are doing their version it's not 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 literally but their version of pink floyd the wall or something like that where their whole concept went too far and became you know kind of annoying i guess right yeah that's the way i feel about it anyway so yeah but that leads us to your long distance dedication matt what do you have this week See, well, I, I could have gone in a lot of interesting directions with long-distance dedication this week. Um, could have talked about Bone Thugs and Harmony, um, Peaches by the Presidents of the United States of America, um, Jock Jams Volume 1. <laughs> if, I swear to God, if you steal mine, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> okay. Um, MTV's The Zen of the Buzzbin. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. Um, Schoolhouse Rock Rocks. Um, DC Talks Jesus Freak or um, Andy Griffith's 25 Timeless Hymns. <laughs> but, ultimately, yeah. but ultimately, I decided to honor another local legend. I, I already spotlighted a Madison legend at 36. So why not? Why not do another local legend? Um, at number 23 in the Hot 100, we have Waukesha, Wisconsin's own the Bodines. Whoa. With Closer to Free. And that song's from ninety-six? Holy shit. I thought that was much earlier than that. Well, it, it was on an earlier album, but it became a hit in ninety-six. Okay. But anyway, I, I don't want to dwell too much on the song, um, which was the theme song of the um drama Party of Five. And honestly, it's not that great to begin with. I just want to talk about how ubiquitous these guys are in and are in the state of Wisconsin. If you go to a county fair, these guys are there. If you go to a brat fry, these guys are probably there. If you go to a rib fest, they're probably headlining. I I actually went to a museum once and one of the guys was there playing for like absolutely no reason. He was just there. But I, I'm pretty sure every state has a band like this. And um, in Wisconsin, we have the Bodines. But, um, but yeah, just to keep it short, um, just sending this out to um, Wisconsin and um, Ribfest, I guess. Ribfest, nice. Well, you know what? It's, we're both from Wisconsin, and we both love Wisconsin. As much as I love Wisconsin, Wisconsin's contribution to rock and roll has not been wonderful. I mean, even yeah, the people who are associated with it mostly did their stuff after they left Wisconsin. Um, you know, and it's like, uh, I mean, if you ask somebody to name the most famous 
Wisconsin band ever. You know, most people would most people wouldn't know who to name. First of all, yeah. secondly, if they did, it would be the Violent Femmes. Is my guess would yeah. be the number one pick, and I hate the Violent Femmes. I don't um, mind them, but yeah, they'd probably be what most people would pick. And and then you'd probably go with the Bodines, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only group from Wisconsin that I actively enjoy are the Shivers from Milwaukee, which are a power pop band from mm-hmm. the early 80s. They're good. But, but you know, but nobody knows who the hell the Shivers are unless you're really into, you know, that that kind of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of bands that have been around the periphery of Wisconsin that got famous by being in Wisconsin. Cheap Trick jumps to mind. They were discovered in Waukesha. Right. Um, um, shoes were sort of, you know, on the border. They were from Zion, Illinois. I, I, I worked and, with a guy who knew them when they used to play in Madison. And play, apparently, according to them, they're huge jerks. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, whatever. But I know a few of their guys live in Kenosha or whatever. But I don't know. It's kind of a shame because I live in Indiana now. And you think of Indiana's contribution to rock and roll. It's not wonderful, but you have identifiable people. I mean, John Cougar, Mellencamp, obviously, uh, if you want to count the Jacksons, they are originally from Indiana legitimately. And um, and a few others, Henry Lee Summer. But, yeah. um, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, we, we have a lot of things to be proud of in Wisconsin, but contribution to rock and roll ain't one of them. Definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> so... But let's go on to 29 here for you, which is um, the Cowboy Junkies with a Common Disaster. You know, almost all my good songs are kind of meshed together. And I kind of feel bad because the Cowboy Junkies, Cowboy Junkies from basically the late 80s on were like that cool band that got a lot of press, you know, in Rolling Stone and Spin and shit like that, that. I'm not saying that nobody listened to them because there were definitely people who listened to them, but they were like a cool band to kind of name check that I guarantee you a lot of people may have heard Sweet Jane, basically, and very little else. And I raised my hand. I'm guilty. You know, I did not listen to the Cowboy Junkies. There wasn't much in my youthful experience that would make me want to listen to the Cowboy Junkies because their music is really mellow and... But I wish I had because, and I need to explore them more because um, they do have a really cool sound. And it is, I've heard them described as alt country. I I mean, I guess. I think they have a pretty unique sound that really isn't definable Mm -hmm. uh, between there are country elements to what they do and there's kind of um, lo-fi elements to what they do too. And um, however, they were copied quite a bit. And this song... This song was on one of their last albums to kind of still have mainstream relevance. And uh, it's probably a little bit more up-tempo than a lot of their other stuff. It still has that kind of distant dissonance that all their songs had where the music, you know, the vocals are prominent in the mix, but it's not like they're loud. And then the music is even buried more into the mix. Very much, very trademark sound that they had. And so it moves and it's kinetic, but it's also quiet at the same time, which was kind of the way, you know, what they were famous for. But there were a lot of lesser artists that sort of copied what they did and commercialized it right around this time. I mean, you think of the commercial, who, who, the, the biggest example of a commercialized version of what they were recording 
would be Where Have All the Cowboys Gone by Paula Cole. Mm-hmm. And that came out a little later, I think, in 96. This sounds just, this sounds like a hundred times better version of that song, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I got to give it up to the Cowboy Junkies. That's a band I need to explore more because I guarantee you I'd probably, with my ears attuned now, I would like them a lot better than I probably would have. I probably would have liked them in the 90s if I would have, you know, given them some more time. But I do regret listening to them more than I did. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I really regret it. Like, I want to go back in time, like Terminator style and change, like punch myself in the face and say, hey, dickhead, listen to the Cowboy Junkies. Stop listening to... um." the shaft soundtrack oh, okay <laughs> i don't i someday i'm gonna find the terminator time machine i'm gonna do that because we're in the time we're in the time period right now where it should be around somewhere yeah that's true that's true i hope i can transport back with clothes on though because i don't really want to do that part uh, okay okay anyway number 28 and this had a famous video to it big me by the food fighters Right. And yeah, like tonight, tonight, this is best known for its video, which is a direct parody parody of the Mentos commercials yep. that were airing at the time. And uh, Mentos, I think, was manufactured in the Netherlands, but they all had like kind of cheesy um, European style ads. Um, and in the Foo Fighters video for Big Me, they essentially copied three of these commercials scene for scene. <laughs> and um, the first part of it, the Foo Fighters are playing a group of workers and they're um, freeing a woman's car that was parked in. Um, it's like a, <laughs> a mini. So the Foo Fighters pick up the car and move it into the street so she can get out. And um, the second part's... Um, the Foo Fighters are kind of like running down the street, kind of kicking a soccer ball around and a limo comes into their way. So Dave Kroll can't cross the street with the rest of the Foo Fighters. So he decides to walk through the limo and kind of like flashes the Mentos roll at the woman as he's walking through. And the last part, a kid sneaks on stage with the Foo Fighters and the Foo Fighters are angry until he um, flashes the roll of Mentos at him. And um, it, I mean, it was definitely a change of pace from what Dave Grohl was doing in Nirvana. I could never see Nirvana doing a video like this, but... Um, Go ahead. But the problem is that, like, every single Foo Fighters video that he did after this... Um, here, I mean, it was kind of, like, ironic hamming, but... After that, he was just doing, like, actual hamming up in their videos. And um, because of the video, they actually stopped playing the song live because the audience would just pelt them with Mentos. <laughs> and um, um, you actually almost never hear this song on the radio these days. Um, yeah, because it, it doesn't really... It's It was a... Even then, it was a departure for the... Foo Fighters. It's yeah, not I mean, it's it's not it's basically like a light poppy song, and I mean, there's really nothing rock about it. It's it's 
probably couldn't even count as power pop. Is I mean, it's just basically just a regular pop song. So. It was it was a it was a goof off. I mean, there's there was purpose behind it, but I, I I will say I think you had an interesting take on it that I kind of ruined because this video was funny. I mean, it, when it came out, it was my favorite video because it was it captured something that was funny in the moment at the right time. It was a good, it was, it was an unexpected parody, which are the best ones. So I think you're right about the way that Dave Grohl handled it. I'll take it a different direction in the same vein. I think this ruined Mentos commercials because I'm convinced before this video was out that those were not intended to be cheesy on purpose, that they were just right. Yeah. I I think you're right about that. Unintentionally cheesy. And then Mentos became self-aware that oh okay we're doing really cheesy ads and then they sort of became forced after that so dave Grohl ruined the mentos commercials because they were i'm convinced that those were sincerely like over the top on purpose like the, unaware that it was dopey looking the right original yeah. fresh maker commercials so yeah but i'm gonna disagree with you on one thing nirvana did make one video that wasn't quite as jokey as this one is in bloom was making fun of uh 1950s tv yeah that's true but i mean it and, wasn't as jokey as this uh, kurt cobain i think kurt cobain did a great acting job in that video where he's acting dorky like a lot because you know most of the bands back in the 50s and early 60s weren't used to being on camera and it showed sometimes he <laughs> did a good job faking that in that video i thought yeah but yeah you know and then heart-shaped box video is a laugh riot <laughs> yeah yeah definitely <laughs> it's um anyway let's move on to 27 here for you which is gravity kills with guilty skip and i'm gonna tell you the one word i used to describe this song which was from the seven soundtrack by the way uh shite shite okay <laughs> i use shite okay. instead of i use that for emphasis because i could have just said shit but i'd rather go with that one extra letter that makes it even worse shite shite <laughs> okay shite uh for you matt number 26 is sweet dreams are made of this by marilyn manson and this song is about getting your ribs removed so you can suck your own dick um, is it <laughs> no no that, that's wins. just that's just one of the many wild rumors that were circulating about marilyn manson at the time and it's actually just a cover of the 1983 Eurythmics hit, which I actually covered in our very first episode. And my high school was very conservative. And there was just like a total moral panic about this guy. It's, yeah, I remember that. It was pretty funny. It, it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. But the song, it's... I mean, it's basically just giving this song kind of like an Alice Cooper treatment is the best way to describe it. And um, kind of Nine Inch Nails meets Alice Cooper and Trent Reznor did produce this. So that explains the Nine Inch Nails part. And um, their label didn't want to release this as a single. They wanted to release him doing a cover of Screaming Jay Hawkins, I put a spell on you instead. But they decided to go for this. And I thought this peak, this was actually its peak on the chart. And 
I thought it was a bigger hit just because it got played on the radio a lot. I mean, part of this might have been because Manson was a local hero where we were living. Um, he was from Canton, Ohio. We kind of lived in between Akron and Canton in the suburbs. But um, but this this the video for this is another, like, um, filthy warehouse video. <laughs> and um, Marilyn's kind of doing his best to be scary in it. <laughs> and there's a lot of weird camera angles, and he's faking seizures, and he's wearing dresses and climbing around in a fireplace. And the other members of the band are kind of doing the same thing. And it seemed kind of creepy at the time, but it's pretty funny now to look, <laughs> look back mean, at it. The moral panic over Marilyn Manson. I mean, Marilyn Manson's definitely another band or artist that mark my line of demarcation of what I would have liked and what I didn't, because I thought Marilyn Manson sucked. And that was where my moral panic was. It was it was less where it wasn't a moral panic, but I mean, less of what his imagery was and just the fact that something that sucky had mass appeal that bugged me like what the fuck this guy is not i mean i didn't really like nine inch nails either and he was so clearly a nine inch nails ripoff and i'm like what is the appeal of this bullshit so right yeah but it had nothing to do with morality i couldn't have given a shit about that it was just like this dude sucks why do you like him pretty much pretty much he he did your generation he did have one really great song, like a couple albums after this, um, Dope Show, which is kind of a glam song. But yeah, you're right about him pretty much you're, sucking, though. Class of 96, Matt, your generation ruined music. <laughs> okay, okay. That's where, I'm, that's where I'm deriving from this. Okay. Well, let's move on to 25 here for you, which is Lush with Lady Killers. This is also a skip, and it's so shitty, I didn't even write the word shite next to it. It was just a straight-up skip. Okay. So, for you, revisiting the Smashing Pumpkins at number 24 with zero. Yeah, this is a skip also. I I mean, I already did Smashing Pumpkins, so why do them again? (laughs) Homer Simpson, speaking politely. Yep. Uh, 23 for you is Gin Blossoms with Day Job. You know, by all rights, I should really like the Jim Blossoms because all they really did was play jangle pop and power pop and all that. And that's a sound that I typically like. But I don't know. Jim Blossoms from the beginning just struck me as the most bland band of all time. I I don't get it. I mean, they were like if you were at a party and it could be anywhere, it could be a frat party. It could be in a bar. It could be in any kind of bar um other than maybe like a metal heavy metal bar or something they were the ultimate background music that was identifiable in a sense but was also completely on like completely completely generic i mean i i i can't th- there can't be passionate jim blossoms fans out there i just can't believe that i mean they're probably not probably not they're just so they're generic i mean i just it, And then I read, when I was researching them, New Miserable Experience, which was their first album that was a hit, so went quadruple platinum. I'm like, and those are my people my age buying that stuff. And I'm like, you know, based on Hey Jealousy, basically, from a few years earlier, I'm like, 
you know, wow, okay, I guess I missed the boat on there. There was a couple other hits off of that. Oh, I, oh, there were there were yeah. there were more. They they had more hits. I'm not saying they didn't, but I just am trying to figure out like why. I mean, what was so great about them? I I do remember hearing having one conversation with about the Jim Blossoms, and it might have been around this time actually, uh, with a girlfriend of a buddy of mine. And she's like, hey, new Jim Blossoms album was out. And I said something like, oh, they're shit. <laughs> and she did say, no, no, you misjudged them. They're actually pretty good. So, and I was like, yeah, whatever. They're too boring to argue about. But um, I think I figured out, though, what bugs me about the Jim Blossoms. And this song has it. Hey, Jealousy has it. And so do a lot of other uh, Jim Blossom songs. They have the same drum fills in every fucking song. That they do that that like tap then four taps in that list go listen to the, some of their songs they all have the same drum fills at the end of verses or choruses hmm. okay I, i've never noticed that but you're probably right about that and you know they're pleasant but um this song and this song is pleasant but like all their other songs it's like like i listened to it a couple days ago to research this i don't remember one thing about it so yeah i, I, I don't know i remember this one either they're like the i'm trying to think of a band like another band from another decade that they would compare to they're like the um that was popular they're like the bachman turner overdrive of the 90s okay in terms of the fact that they they don't sound like bto but i, I mean in the fact that they basically do a bland form of music that was listened to but isn't really all that memorable yeah yeah i guess that's, so. that's that's the BTO part of it. So, mm-hmm. but you know, yep. right on down the way, etc. cetera. Um, number 22 for you, Matt is in the meantime by space hog. See at the, at the time I thought that the song was a complete spider Mars era Bowie ripoff. But um, after I listened to it again this week, um, it's actually closer to being, an Oasis song with Mick Ronson style guitar licks. Um, definitely more Brit pop than glam, but um, all the members of Space Hog were from Leeds, who we, which we yep. brought up in our last episode, but they didn't form until they moved to New York. Um, they all knew each other in Leeds and they all ended up in New York and ended up meeting up and, starting a band and um they were actually friends with sean lennon um john lennon's son and he actually lent them a bass that john owned and they used that on the song so you're hearing john lennon's bass even though john lennon wasn't a bass player that's john lennon's bass on this song and um the song title only appears in the verses. Um, um, basically, say it right before they go into the choruses, and um, it's used in a lot of ads. Um, basically, just the woo part in the intro, and yep. it, was al- it was also used as the theme music for BBC's Mash of the Week. But um, it ended up being. They're one of only two hits on the alternative charts. They had one more after this, but it was their only one in the Hot 100. So technically, they do count as one hit wonders. 
And the video for this was a takeoff on the Yardbird scene from Blow Up. Um, they don't smash their guitars like in that scene, but it's basically the band playing in front of a bored hipster audience who's basically just standing there still with their with blank expressions on their faces. But um, pretty decent song. Um, kind of one of the better, I think one of the better ones on this list, actually. So. Yep. But 21 for you is Paul Westerberg with Love Untold. This is a skip because this is Paul Westerberg in cruise control mode. He had kind of modified the, you know, the, the late period replacement sound into like radio friendly alternative MOR. So that's basically what this was. So, yeah. But that leads us into my long distance dedication, which you actually name checked in your in your long distance dedication. Okay, okay. And I am rolling with I love to tell the story. 25 timeless hymns by Andy Griffith. This oh god. It's number 78 <laughs> on the album chart in 1996. Um our rule by the way when we do these specialty charts is we can go grab a long distance dedication off another chart because uh this chart only goes to 40. So um I picked this up because I love it when you look at a chart and you just see something completely random out of the blue that doesn't belong to its time, doesn't really belong to its place, and yet it's there. So this album, and I did listen to one, well, 10 seconds of one track um, <laughs> from one of them, and it is pretty much what you'd expect. Extremely overproduced versions of hymns by Andy Griffith, who at that time would have been what, like 75 or something? He had um, been, yeah. There's biggies on there, you know, standards like Shall We Gather at the River, How Great Thou Art, Amazing Grace, which we talked about last week is on it, not with bagpipes, though. <laughs> and in a stab at rel- relevancy, one of the bonus tracks was uh, Come and Ride the Train by the Quad City DJs. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Griffith hit that one hard. It, Andy Griffith jock jams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on top of that. But um, so I just think it's funny when you see random stuff like this on the chart. Um, and Andy Griffith could could actually sing. He took a lot of pride in that, I think. Um, you know, he didn't do it all that much, you know, in his popular vehicles like the Andy Griffith show. But um, but he hit it here and, you know, <laughs> goes to show, you know, Andy Griffith never really lost his popularity i mean shit they still show the andy griffith show here in Terre Haute. like it's on one of the tv channels here like at 5 30 it's like on after the news huh. Huh. so you know he he was he was a big deal and and right he was you know he, he he earned his fame so but i think it's funny that this was in there with like the original gangsta soundtrack and <laughs> uh, you know all kinds of other out of place stuff oasis and all that so Mm-hmm. Uh, so hats off to Andy Griffith and hats off to all the weird stuff that ends up on the chart that has nothing to do with uh, the time that it was that it charted right yeah shall we get ga- every time I think of shall we gather at the river and I think this movie is on right now as we record this I, I can't help but think of uh, the wild bunch okay okay well the be- the beginning part where he's like where um uh, Crazy Lee is like they're singing "Gather by the River," and he's got the hostages in the in the 
in the uh, union, uh, uh, in the in the uh, telegraph office or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's like Looney, and he makes them sing it, and then they escape when he's not watching. <laughs> Obviously, you don't know your Wild Bunch, but that's uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> that's a biggie. So, next up, Matt, for you is number twenty. Who will save your soul? By Jewel. Jewel lived in a van, and she was from Alaska. I know. <laughs> that, so that, that, that is that is the one fact that like got pointed out pointed out constantly when Jewel first became famous was that she was from like absolute middle of nowhere in Alaska, and she was living in a van when she got her first record deal. But. Um, this was this was her first single, but it wasn't released until 18 months after her first album came out. Um, she wrote the song while she was in high school. She was hiking across the country um, on spring break for some reason, and she ended up writing this song. And the lyrics deal with kind of living on the edge of poverty, but also skepticism over religion um um kind of asking who's gonna save your soul because um you gotta save your own soul i guess but um she does a lot of weird things with her voice i mean she did do kind of like a yodeling thing um or she was kind of known for like doing yodeling and she doesn't quite do that here but she does have like a lot of like weird vocal tics and it's pretty annoying but um but the radio version is slightly different than what came out on the album there's one less verse on the radio version and i mean that's the only version i know i didn't go back and listen to the album version so i could tell you what was missing but um Ended up going pretty high on the Hot 100, made it to number 11. Um, ended up being her first hit. Actually crossed over onto Adult Contemporary, too, which is, I mean, for me, that seems like a better fit for Jewel than this chart. But she was getting played on alternative stations. But but yeah, that's... Sort cool. of. <laughs> sort of was part of uh, the Lilith Fair movement of the 90s as well a little bit she was i I think she did actually play on that tour too yeah so this was kind of one of the genesis's of that um jewel's okay i never had any big issue with jewel i mean she's pleasant she's kind of the gin blossoms of female folk singers i guess although you know what now that i think about it i can't name another jewel song if i had a gun to my head right now though she, I mean, she had, I mean, most of her hits were off of this album. Right. Yeah. I know she had other hits. I just can't name any of them right now. Like cold. I can't do it. You were meant for me was on there. Yep. Now that you mentioned that, I remember that song, but. I, I, Foolish Games, I think is another. <clears throat> um, so. <laughs> you know, I think also on there was Electric Youth. <laughs> yes. Maybe. Yes. Um, maybe uh, Toy Soldiers was on it. Could be, could be. <laughs> All I know is that Lilith Fair ended up breaking down to Sarah McLaughlin 
um, doing weepy voiceovers for uh, for uh, pets. ASPCA, right? ASPCA, right? Yeah. Yeah. My thing about the ASPCA ads is like, why don't the documentary cameramen filming these things fucking save the animals? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. we don't have enough B-roll of this dog crying itself to death. We need to sit here and film more horrible animal abuse. <laughs> there's a certain, I, I know there's not a contradiction in it because they're trying to raise, raise awareness about it. I get it. But that always, every time I see one of those ads, it's like, go save the fucking dog, assholes. And maybe they do, but mm-hmm. like, yep. do they have to get the animals? Like, do they yell at them if they're not being pathetic enough? Yeah, could be, could be. I don't know. Never know. <laughs> <laughs> These bits of wisdom are why people listen to this podcast. Exactly, exactly. But number 19 for you is Stone Temple Pilots with tripping on a hole in a paper heart. Yeah, I'm skipping this one because it's kind of mediocre. Stone Temple Pilots, plus you get to talk about them later. So that That is true. Yes. So. That leaves us at number 18 for you, Matt, is Bonditos by The Refreshments. Let's see. These guys were from Tempe, Arizona. They're actually part of the same scene as the Gin Blossoms. Nice. So, what a scene it was. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm assuming it was just like playing at the one bar that's near Arizona State or whatever. <laughs> There's a lot more bars than that. Near, near, I've been to Tempe. There's a lot more than that, but but it's not exactly like you don't like feel the culture coming out of the Tempe bar scene. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but this song is, it's about a heist in Mexico and it's basically just kind of laying out like what they're going to do on the heist. Um, the word banditos is not actually mentioned in the song. Um, probably a more accurate title for it would be the world's full of stupid people which is what they sing in the chorus but um was essentially their only alternative hit they had they had one more minor one but the thing that they're probably best known for is that they wrote and performed the theme song to king of the hill oh and and they answered an open casting call for that and they didn't know anything about the show ahead of time aside from the fact that it was um, created by Mike Judge from Beavis and Butthead and it took place in Texas so their song ended up winning the competition and um, they weren't really paid that much for it Um, the lead singer said that he spent his entire share on a kayak so (laughs) Money well, money well spent in Tempe, Arizona in particular. Yeah, yeah. And also kind of going back to um, King of the Hill, um, I went and watched the video for this, and their bass player looks exactly like Bobby Hill. Yeah, well, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, but and one thing in this song, they mentioned using Jean-Luc Picard as an alias uh, to fool the Mexican border guards, and I don't think that would work because I'm assuming Star Trek was also running in Mexico. Oh, yeah. So probably wouldn't work. No, probably not. <laughs> King of the Hill is one of those shows. I know it's good, but I haven't watched it in ages. So I have no idea how it would hit me these days. 
it's, like I, it's aged pretty well. I, I I'm think. sure it had most Mike judge stuff has aged pretty well. And so I have a feeling it probably would. I used to watch it pretty regularly, you know, for the first couple of years it was on, but man, I haven't seen that show in a while. It, I mean, it's, it's still on reruns here. I, I catch oh, it. Oh yeah. It's, it's on reruns all over the place. I just don't, don't really seek it out, but so. Right. Let's see, but number 17 for you is no doubt with spiderwebs. Get out your horns because it's time <laughs> for the Ska Revival. Ska yep. Revival was big in 1996. Have no idea why. I, mean, I, I really, that's another thing I'm like, now I, I don't mind Ska music at all. I actually like it, but I'm not really sure exactly what was going on with like people my age and your age that would signify that, huh? maybe we ought to start listening to horn based kind of fast punk music. You know, I don't, I don't know what was going on that, that caused that, but anyway, no doubt we're one of the purveyors of the ska revival. And I really hated this song when it was out. I went back and listened to it. It's not as bad as I remember it being. It's actually not that bad, honestly, Mm -hmm. but the problem is, is it still comes off to me as product. And I think that's what bugs me about a lot of the songs in this chart is, like I said earlier, I mean, I think kind of like how MTV became very much product in the 80s by 86. I think by 96, a lot of the um, alternative trends that were, you know, alternative is a catch-all term for a lot of different genres. And I think by 96, the record companies had figured out, you know, how they could make money off of this sound. And no doubt has always struck me as a band that, you know, and I know they had, uh, you know, modest beginnings and all that. Um, you know, Gwen Stefani and her brother basically, you know, got the band going and it's not like they couldn't play. They could, but I don't know. They just, they, they struck me as fake at the time. And, uh, yeah, yeah, same here. You know, it, it just seemed like, Hey, there, these, this is the new trend. Why don't you listen to no doubt? So, <laughs> No Doubt did have one great fucking song, though, much later when Hella Good came out. That is an awesome song, but... It's um, pretty good, yeah. Going going to show that, you know, bands I don't care for can produce a whopper once in a while. But I don't... But I have to say, I think the highlight of their career, and this goes to the heart... I didn't know about this until I researched it. This goes to the heart of what I mean. The record company sent them on a tour, and they played the Fresno Blockbuster in early 96. <laughs> So that's about as 90s as it gets to go play a Blockbuster store somewhere. So were they actually playing in the store or was it like in a parking lot? I don't, it it didn't say, but I mean, just the (laughs) fact that they, you know, that the record company thought that that was something that would give them credibility is, it cracks me up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I'm surprised Blockbuster could pay them based on how many late fees I would have had at Blockbuster at the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) true. Running PlayStation One games or Sega games at that point, I guess. But uh, yeah. So anyway, it's not. It's actually musically, it's better than I remember it being. But it still hit me the same way. It's like, yeah, this is product. But yeah. Anyway, next song for you, Matt. Number sixteen is "Heart Spark Dollar Sign" by Everclear. This is a skip. These guys are one of my least favorite bands, and I don't really want to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they did something mean to you. I no, no, I just like, don't really don't like that. Like Everclear showed up at Green High School in 96 and beat you up or something. 
<laughs> I didn't mind Everclear that much. I, I I knew what I was getting out of Everclear. You know, basically popified alternative music is what they were. Yeah. I'm yeah. not saying I liked them. I mean, I didn't have any of their albums or anything, but, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. See, but 15 for you is Porno for Pyros with Tahitian Moon. See, I'm skipping this for much the same. I, I don't hate Porno for Pyros at all. But I was just never big into the Perry Farrell bands. Neither one of them. I, I was not a big Jeans Addiction fan. And I wasn't a big Porno for Pyros fan. So this song's okay. It's just kind of there, though. So I'm skipping it. Okay. But number 14 for you is Pepper by the Butthole Surfers. See, one of the funniest moments in my life is when I had to explain this band to a younger coworker. Um. <laughs> This this song came up on somebody's Spotify, and the guy turned to me and asked, hey, Matt, what's this? And I'm like, oh, it's the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> and he's like, the Butthole Surfers? <laughs> and then I, I went into like a long spiel about how they're a really weird band that took like tons of acid, fired live ammo on stage, covered themselves with fake blood played in front of like weird surgical footage and had new dancers and how they at one point moved to Athens, Georgia for the sole purpose of stalking R.E.M. <laughs> <laughs> and all of this before they inexplicably had a huge radio hit in the mid nineties. He was like, wow. So they were really called the butthole surfers. Yep. Well, it, but it's go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this song was inspired by Beck's Loser um, musically anyway and lyrically it kind of has the same feel as Jim Carroll's People Who Died or um, The Nails 88 Lines About 44 Women and all the people mentioned the song were um, former high school classmates of Gibby Haynes and he kind of explained it as it wallows in the self-pity of the whole I had the weirdest River's Edge high school ever. But everybody has their own wild-ass situation. There's a car wreck or a house on fire, a rape, a strange teacher, um, pedophilia, and the wrestling coach. Everybody has that shit going down. <laughs> nice. But You're right, though. There probably is, like, sordid stories Almost everybody has one about their high school experience, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, he kind of credited Beavis and Butthead for giving them a hit because it made them, they made it safe to say the word butthole on the radio. Yeah. So he he thought that they got a boost from that. And um, their drummer pointed out that it was the number one titty bar song in Texas. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Because... Because everybody loves the they were doing it in Texas line. Yeah, yeah, I could totally but, that. But, I mean, it's kind of a shock that this did cross over to the top 40, um, being that it was the Butthole Surfers. And I knew it was kind of a big, a big hit, but I wasn't aware of how big of a hit it was. It was actually the number one alternative single for 1996. I would, but, I would never have guessed that. That's surprising. Yeah, yeah, neither would I. But um but the video for this is pretty cool actually. It's black and white and it's kind of made to look like 60s news footage. 
and the butthole surfers um, are getting arrested because they're involved in a kidnapping and they're in a seedy motel and um, Eric Estrada makes a cameo and it's and they're being interviewed by TV reporters before they get hauled off to jail but it it looks pretty cool and it's aged better than a lot of the videos for some of the songs on here but pretty cool song um, but the the interview that I got some of the research for this off of is was hilarious too because um it was the rolling stone caught up with them in germany and it was like a disastrous gig and they're just like baiting the german audience like calling them nazis and stuff oh that's a deep tradition that jefferson starship also did back in the late 70s yeah but they they went the extra mile and like actually like pulled out like a videotape of Patton (laughs) (laughs) but anyway that's that's the butthole surfers well this tells you what a weird place I was in 1996 when Pepper came out I thought it was a sellout by the butthole surfers because I remembered who was in my room last night which is basically an industrial thrash song I guess if you if if it has a description to it at all and I was like, what is this bullshit from the butthole surfers? I was used to that real kind of hard driving guitar sound, sound that they had on Independent Worm Saloon, which was the album that Who Was In My Room Last Night was on. But so I was like, oh, this is horseshit from the butt. And it was the fucking butthole surfers. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because everybody's reaction to the butthole surfers is the same reaction your coworker had when they first started out. Because I remember hearing about them back when I was in high school because of their band name. I mean, you know, how could you not? So I don't think anybody knew a thing about them other than, Hey, there's this band out there called the butthole surfers. And then I do remember reading a story about them probably in spin or something like that. um, Mentioning what you mentioned that they would come on stage uh, firing off shotguns. But what was funny to me is that they would do that and they would yell, we're the goddamn butthole surfers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was pretty funny, but um this video though pepper was on mtv all the fucking time i mean maybe that's how they became number one or helped them become number one on the alternative chart for 96 because i remember that i was like i was sick of it i was like god how many times are they going to show this fucking thing uh yeah but you know see but um number 13 for you is like kind of in the opposite direction of the butthole surfers um the Nixons with Sister. Yeah, it is. And I don't have a whole lot to say about this one other than this sounds incredibly like Pearl Jam's Black if Black was recorded in a major key instead of a minor key. I mean, it's like a total ripoff of that song. Go listen to it. I mean, mm-hmm. the way he the way he emotes his vocals, the way the, you know, the background music is, it's basically a, it's a complete ripoff of that song. Apart from that, it's basically Jim Blossom's like otherwise. I mean, it's just forgettable, pleasant alternative music. So yep. the next song we have, though, is pretty good. Um, Big Bang Baby by the Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, and I, I really liked this song at the time. Um, it's kind of glam inspired. Almost sounds a little bit like T-Rex. <clears throat> sounds like Kiss, too. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And there's some 
light psychedelic touches in the chorus, but it's basically just an STP song, but a pretty good STP song. And the lyrics of the song don't really mean anything at all. Um, Scott Weiland said that he was just kind of doing a stream of conscious thing. So um, can't really read anything into the lyrics at all. But um, like a couple of the other songs, this song is probably best known for its video, which is a send up of early 80s videos with like the all white background and it's really low budget. It was um, videotaped, not filmed. And honestly, it's aged a lot better than some of the videos on my side of the chart just because there's no 90s cliches in it. It's using early 80s cliches and those cliches have aged a lot better than the mid 90s ones. Yeah, but you know what? I watched it too because I always, I thought that video at the time along with the big me video was i thought it was i thought it was great because it at that time you hadn't had you know any kind of 80s revival type nostalgia at that point i mean you're still only you know barely a decade removed from that period in the first place and um so you and i can see that in the video but if somebody went back and watched it now i think a lot of that would be lost from it i mean other than yeah yeah i think you're right maybe the part at the end where they're all kind of doing the brady bunch thing and first of all it looks like they're completely whacked out on heroin or whatever the hell they were using at the time which makes it funny but um you know that part of it is pretty obviously cheesy the rest of it is cheesy to your and my eyes because we saw the original versions of these types of videos um i don't know if that would necessarily register with somebody like say my kids watching it or something but i don't think they would get the parody of it they'd be like oh this looks like the videos from the 80s or if they even made that distinction at all but but it is but but it was really funny that they put out a video like that And you're right there weren't many so many bands were so serious about their videos you know the development of videos at that point was you know by then it had become standardized and you know, we're, we're still in the period in 96 before, you know, where streaming didn't really exist at this point, or at least not in a mass uh, consumed way. So, you know, the old school record company dominance was still very much a big part of it. And by this point, videos were part of that, you know, marketing strategy. So unless you were a pretty big band, you couldn't really fuck around too much with your videos. I mean, you even if you wanted to have a humorous bent to it, it had to have good production value, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess STP at this point was to the point where they had enough hits where they could, you know, have a little bit more freedom to do that. But it is a cool video, though, and the song rocks. I mean, I think that's probably this is probably the best song, on, you know, eh, probably the best song on this chart, I think. It, it's one of the best. I, I wouldn't say it it is the best, but it, it is a decent song. Yeah, I, this is where my mind really started to turn on Stone Temple Pilots to more of a positive feel because the song itself while it isn't looking back it isn't all that much different necessarily from some of their other ones but it seemed more refreshing at the time and of course later on from the same uh album they would release uh, lady picture show which is a great song so yeah yeah Let's see but number 11 for you um rage against the machine bulls on parade i got one thing to say to you matt 
Okay. Rally around the family with a pocket full of shells. <laughs> I swear to God, Zach De La Rocha says that a hundred times in that fucking song. But um, yep. And at the time, you know, I would listen to it. I'd be like, oh, okay, what the fuck are you talking about? But I suppose, you know, Rage Against the Machine, of course, very famously um, left wing in their politics. And, you know, a band that was pretty overtly, you know, they were so overtly political by the standard of the time that that almost came off to me as like like a branding type of thing, uh, even though it it probably was sincere. But um, but my thing with Rage was, is that I still think that they were more popular as like the ultimate mosh pit band more so than they were as like mm-hmm. a political band, because it's funny how many Rage fans you listen to that if you know the person, their politics don't align with rage whatsoever. It's like they just want to go out there and thrash and bang their head to like bulls on parade or, or uh, you know, um, to freedom or something like that. I mean, it's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, and they got booed off of their own stage a lot because of course Zach De La Rocha was, was uh, crazy and would just do shit like sit on stage for 15 minutes and not, <laughs> You know, there was a political point to it, but he wouldn't explain it to the crowd because he was kind of into agit uh, entertainment. So mm-hmm. you could tell that not everybody, I'm sure there were plenty of people in their crowd that were completely aligned with their politics, but there were plenty that weren't. And so they get like booed off their own stage and stuff like that. So um, that was always my thing about rage. You know, I know they're probably thought of more fondly now as a serious band and certainly a lot of the themes they addressed are timely this song in particular is timely right this minute but um i don't know i don't think people were listening i don't i I think there are plenty of people who just like to thrash out to them which is yeah i mean yeah pretty much they they were probably i liked some of their songs and some of them i didn't but you know tom morello is a is a hell of a guitar player and um so i can certainly respect that and you know they they were kind of my cup of tea but not not completely yeah yeah anyway for you matt number 10 is you learn by alanis morissette i was definitely not a fan of alanis in 1996 um are you a fan of alanis in 2020 what are you a fan of alanis in 2020 probably not okay no but I, I, I thought she was overexposed. Um, she was more or less straight up pop, and I didn't really understand why they were playing her on alternative stations. And they played her all the damn time. On, Good Lord, did they ever. Yeah. And most of the songs weren't really that great to begin with. I mean, I just didn't get it. And um, this is probably the least annoying single from that album, though, which... Yeah, this song isn't that bad. I, I didn't actually have a big issue with this one. Right. And it was it was one of the first songs that was written for the album, and it was actually where the title of the album, Jagged Little Pill, comes from. But, um, but um, not really too much to say about this. Um, there, there's a video where it's basically just Alanis wreaking havoc throughout the whole thing in New York and actually features the World Trade Center. So, wow. 
You know, yeah. I think what bugged me about Alanis was that I just her voice just annoyed me. That was what. Bugged yeah, me about yeah, it is pretty annoying. And yeah. I mean, how, how many hits did she have after Jagged Little Pill? Because frankly, I don't remember many of them. Not many. I, I there was Thank You, which was like the first single off of her follow up album after this, and then there was like nothing afterwards. Yeah. So, but I mean, she did sell like. 15 million copies oh, yeah. of this. Yeah. It's like, so, I mean, also I mean, kind of big. That happened with the Hootie and the Blowfish around the same time, too, where they had like a huge album and then just like disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, sort of. Yeah. Although, although Hootie and the Blowfish kind of became like, you know, I can at least understand their appeal. I mean, there weren't, they weren't artistically stretching anything out or anything, but they were like a pleasant bar band to listen to, I guess. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan, but I mean, I can see why people would be. But you know, Alanis happened to hit at the right time with her brand of uh, female rock, which she also probably, along with Jewel, were you know kind of precursor to the type thing. Fair thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, but number nine for you is Goldfinger with Here in Your Bedroom. This is some more ska and California punk, although I will say that this is a little bit better than um, No Doubt's brand of this. Um, The song was written by the lead singer of Goldfinger about hooking up with a girl after having a long-term crush on her, where he finally got the courage to ask her out. And um, it's based on a true story, and he must have been a real Don Juan in the sack because... The, the truth is based on a true story. The girl he did ultimately hook up with broke up with him like instantly afterwards. So, uh, <laughs> okay. So okay. Good job, dude. But he got a decent song out of it. I mean, this is pretty prototypical, you know, Southern California rock at the time. It's not bad. It's, it's okay. It's not great. Um, but, you know, Goldfinger never really had much other than this. So, at least they got their hit out of the uh, out of that hookup. That hookup led to a hit. So I mean, hey, yeah, can't knock it. So <laughs> number eight for you, revisiting Oasis again with Champagne Supernova. Well, well, first it's Champagne Supernova, yeah, instead of right, not not Champagne Supernova, but it's um, this song's really epic, kind of over the top, and it's pretty long for a single. The Single version is about five minutes long, but on the album, it's about seven and a half. Yeah, good Lord. I mean, it's like way long. Yeah. But I I was surprised that it wasn't actually released as a single in the UK. I I thought that would have been like an obvious single off of the album in the UK, but it wasn't. Um, But it was a single here. And um, it's actually, I mean, I really like this song, and it's actually the reason why I went out and bought the album. But um, Noel Gallagher said that he doesn't have the slightest clue what the song means and that most of the lyrics are just nonsense. Like probably the most infamous example will be the slowly walking down the hall faster than a cannonball <laughs> lyric. But, but he, he said that when he has 50,000 people singing the song back to him, it means something to them. So um, they're the ones who come up with the meaning for it, not him. <laughs> but, um, 
Paul Weller from the Jam and Style Console guests on this. He plays um, lead guitar with Noel Gallagher on it, kind of double lead guitar. And um, melodica, the instrument melodica, is pretty prominently featured on the track. And in the video, they imply that um, Paul Arthurs, who's the rhythm guitarist, plays it, but um, there wasn't a credit on the album saying that he did it. So who knows who actually played it, but, um, but there is an actual supernova that was named after this song. Wow. So that is some cosmic shit, like literally. Yeah. And, um, we have actually posted himself singing this song at the beginning of the pandemic of him washing his hands and, he changed the lyrics to Champagne Sopernova. Oh, my God. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> I only have one question for you, Matt. Yeah. Where were you while we were getting high? I don't know. And then I don't repeat, know. repeat it like 20 times. Yeah. I mean, like the, the last two minutes of it are, are just Liam saying that over and over. Yeah. You know what cracks me up about the whole Oasis in America thing is that the music magazines at the time were trying a little bit too hard to make them big. And they were trying to sell us the Oasis Blur um, feud that was going on at the time. And Blur at that point hadn't really had any hits in America at all. You know, they they would later, but not then. And it was like, why do I give a flying fuck about whether Oasis hates Blur or the other way around. It's like, who gives a fuck? It's like they were, that was like, that was another moment where I was like, why should I care about this shit? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, but although I will, it was definitely a one sided feud in our country. In our country, right. But I mean, in a, in a soccer sense, I was on Oasis' side because they were Manchester City and mm-hmm. Blur were Manchester United. So that's an easy one for me. Were were they Manchester United? They're they're from London. They somehow got associated with Man U. Maybe they were Arsenal. I don't know, but huh. I know Oasis was Man City. And keep in mind, a lot of Manchester United fans come from London because they're bandwagon. But um, but ultimately, Blur. I I think Blur in hindsight was better. But you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um. See, number seven for you is the Verve Pipe with Photograph. There are a lot of songs, Matt, that are called Photograph. I went on Spotify and looked how many songs were just titled Photograph. And this tells you where Verve Pipe kind of is in the Zeitgeist. Ahead of them on the list were songs by Ed Sheeran, Def Leppard, of course, Ringo Starr, of course, Nickelback, and Rihanna with Will I Am were all listed above Verve Pipe's version of photograph and there's probably a reason why it's not very well remembered because it's like so many other songs in this chart where it's just grunge power pop synthesized into you know basically product so um it's it's not terrible i don't think any of these songs are very few of these songs are outright terrible but Mm -hmm. a lot of these songs are outright bland and that's probably why I don't care for a lot of these songs and this song is one of them. And it's also why this, the sound, you know, that kind of commercial 
um, alternative sound was really, it was on its way out though. I mean, a lot of the sounds that we're hearing on this chart, uh, were, what you would not be hearing, you know, two or three years later when, you know, uh, you know, scream core and rap rock became bigger, but so, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of there there. And that's what, you know, that's what embodies a lot of these songs. Right. Yeah. I, I was actually surprised to see this, this high up on the charts. Um, didn't really hear it on the radio that much. It did get played on MTV every once in a while, but the Verpipe's biggest hit was The Freshman, which came out, I think it was on the same album, but it came out about a year after this. Yeah. So. And that one was on MTV and the radio all the damn time. Verpipe is a very 90s band name, too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, next for you. Oh, I'm glad I didn't get this one. <laughs> Too Much by Dave Matthews Band. I've never understood the appeal of this band, and I never will. <laughs> Me neither. But um, the song is about greed, gluttony, overindulgence, and so on. And it's pretty similar to Peter Gabriel's Big Time, but it's kind of like a folkier version of that. And that period of Peter Gabriel was obviously a big influence on the Dave Matthews Band. Um Dave Matthews and Peter Gabriel have similar sounding voices, but um, yeah. And the video is very nineties, but it's different in different nineties than most of the videos. This, on yeah. Here. This is like a well-produced nineties video. Yeah. It's, it's probably closer to the look of like a Madonna video or like an R and B video of the same time period. And it kind of switches between the band and like a group of businessmen in bowler hats that are kind of representing greed. But um, I mean, it's not really too much to say about this. It sounds like almost every other Dave Matthews song. I don't so. understand how, you know, a lot of the people who liked, you know, the cliche for Dave Matthews band fans is that they're a bunch of frat boys and having just finished college and you were just starting it, I think there's some truth to that, but I really don't know what about their sound attracted frat boys in the first place. I, I just, maybe it's because the lead singer had that kind of quirky, you know, high pitch range and you could like get drunk and sing that at a party. I don't know. I mean, I just, I never got it. I just thought it was funny that they dumped a busload of shit on a boat in Chicago once. <laughs> yeah yeah that's true but yeah i i really yeah i don't have any love for for dave matthews band i just don't get it either right <laughs> but which could also be said for our next band too yeah yeah uh, number five we have bush with machine head so this is uh, well i'll get into what movie this is from in a second but this is music and I'm going to vocalize the guitars. It's like, if you listen to any radio show ever, whether it's especially sports radio, but it could be any radio talk show. This It's like this song was designed to be the intro and or outro music from a radio show. That's what it sounds like to me. And it is used by for that purpose by the Paul Feinbaum show, which I don't listen to. But, I mean, it just sounds like totally disposable shit that you could play for 20 seconds and talk over. It's like, hey, next on, 
on the uh, on the on the afternoon sports wrap, we're going to talk about uh, you know whether LeBron and Michael Jordan, who's the goat, you know, <laughs> and you can play the song over the top of it. So it's just completely forgettable, you know, stupid alternative rock from the mid '90s. But that's not really what I want to talk about though with this because this is from the movie Fear, which was a mm-hmm. uh, Mark Wahlberg early Mark Wahlberg movie where he plays like kind of like a bad boy who falls in love with Reese Witherspoon and then he, he's actually like bad. He's like a murderer. And we saw this movie, my wife, Kathleen and I, my girlfriend at the time saw it with a friend and his now wife, girlfriend at the time. And it was terrible, but the fierce soundtrack uh, also has one of the last appearances by Marky Mark rapper, uh, also Mark Wahlberg, of course. And it was called The Illest. And I got to know why Marky Mark doesn't rap anymore. And it kind of, it's, it's kind of sad, honestly. Because you're not going to be able to, you know, you just can't conjure up lyrics like this, Matt. You can't go, you see, it's like basic instinct, psychopath killer. I don't give two fucks because there ain't nobody iller. Oh, God. So... I really weep for the fact that Marky Mark no longer puts out any um, hip hop. Yeah. 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 I'd rather talk about that <laughs> than Bush. So <laughs> anyway, number four for you is counting blue cars by Dishwalla. And I never really liked this song. It's pretty bland, boring, so on. But um, according to their lead singer, um, the guy's name is J.R. Richards, not to be confused with the Astros pitcher. But it's, um, the song is about a young boy going on a spiritual journey. And get this, God is a woman. Whoa. Which, this was that the was, edgy stuff for 1996. That was a common theme, though, to like place God into interesting positions in 90s uh, songs. Right. What yeah. If, what if like, God? What if was? God was one of us? Yeah. What if? Yeah. But supposedly he actually received death threats for that. So. Yeah. Well. So apparently, some people were offended that somebody in a bland song called "God a Woman," but, <laughs> but. The record company decided to release it as a single after it appeared at Empire Records. It wasn't, I don't think it was on the Empire Records soundtrack, but based on the fact that it was in that movie, the record company decided to put it out. And um, it's actually um, the number one rock song on the radio for 97 and 98 like most played song according to ASCAP and it spent 48 weeks on the hot 100, which um, I think might've been a record at the time. So, but I mean, it's don't really understand why. I mean, there's like nothing you could put your hat on with this song. It's, I mean, it's just like listening to air basically pretty much. So, Yeah. It's so it's so bland. I have nothing interesting to talk about it, nor anything stupid to riff off of it. Right. That's pretty sad. But one one thing I will point out is that 
Um, this was the first time I'd actually seen a pictures of a picture of these guys, and um, they look exactly like Creed. I mean, they could be Creed and just change their name, but yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> I'm not about it's... to look at a picture to find out, but yeah, yeah, you probably shouldn't. But anyway, number three for you is Soundgarden with Pretty Noose. Well, by this point in Soundgarden's career, I had pretty much, I kind of had Soundgarden fatigue by this point. Actually, I had fatigue about a lot of the Seattle grunge bands from the 90s who were either gone by this point in Nirvana's case or in Pearl Jam's case were kind of, you know, kind of rudderless at that point, in my opinion, anyway, and uh, Soundgarden were never rudderless, but I didn't really care for Super Unknown that much. And, you know, just the, I thought they lost their edge a little bit after Bad Motorfinger, which is an amazing hard rock album. But and that probably hurt my enjoyment of the song because this is actually a pretty good song. Um, but I just wasn't in the my ears weren't attuned to wanting to hear Soundgarden at that point. But um, and it's from it was from their follow up to Super Unknown down on the upside. So, um, which produced when I was doing my research, some really fine, uh, vintage rock critic word diarrhea. So <laughs> I was rock critics. I, there's a lot of rock critics. I enjoy Robert Crisco is one of my writing heroes actually, but, um, but you know, most of it, like a lot of movie reviews too, is really pretentious, especially in hindsight. And so David Fricky of Rolling Stone reviewed down on the upside and it, and he said it had quote quality frenzy, but it was quote lacking defining episodes of Carth- catharsis, and quote Soundgarden seemed to be digging in their heels rather than kicking kicking up dirt. It's like, Gah, what the fuck does any of that mean? You know, I mean, just yeah, say, I don't know. Just say that you feel like they're repeating themselves. You know, it's like there's. So many rock critics who just try too damn hard, you know, just to explain something relatively simple. I think that's why I like Crisco so much because he would use interesting words, but he was economic in his use of them. And so he could crack off some good lines, but, you know, you didn't have to read through 10 per- paragraphs of horseshit to get to them. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, take that, critics. Once you get in the <laughs> ring, like, with Axl Rose and shit. Um, <laughs> anyway, number number two for you, Matt, is Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham. I, I thought this song was really annoying at the time, and it hasn't really improved with age either. No. Um, it's styled as a call home from a daughter who just left for college, and she's claiming that everything's fine, but it isn't. And it... Sounds a lot like Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know and the choruses. Um, but she's kind of thought of as a one-hit wonder. Um, but she did have one more minor alternative hit, which I don't remember at all. It was called The One, I guess. But um, her follow-up to this ended up getting delayed for a couple of years. Um due to record company shakeups. And by that time, alternative rock had shifted to new metal. So she didn't really fit any anymore. So they basically just released the album and dropped her right away just to get her out of the way. And after that happened, 
um, she bounced back and became a backing musician for the Blue Man Group. Yeah, well, um, that's my. She's she is a classically trained violinist, so she just played violin for the Blue Man Group. That's always been my follow up or fallback. Yeah, that's my fallback option if I ever leave my chosen field. Yep, yep. I mean, she's already got the violin job, so I might have to take over, like, French horn or something like that. Yep, yep. Stupid stupid shit I'm making up alert. Wasn't she John Bonham's daughter? No, no, she she was not. No, no, she was not. It's a shame because... She was was not related to John Bonham, unfortunately. She could have done Bonzo's Montro 96. (laughs) Well, Well, she could have joined Bonham. Bonham, uh, was, Bonham was Bonham a going concern in 96 I'm not so sure they were but they, they might have been possibly it's possible she could have done Moby Dick 96 <laughs> do, 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 Moby Dick the guitar and Moby Dick is cool the drum solo is pretty as great of a drummer as John Bonham was that's uh, that's ponderous but whatever Pretty much. Would have been yeah. better if Tracy Bonham would have done it. That would have been interesting because she wasn't a drummer. No, but that's what I'm saying. She could, have have, been... she could have beat on like the violin or something. Yeah, yeah she could have hopped in with some of that. <laughs> she, could have played, she could have played on Led Zeppelin's um, she could have played on the Battle of Evermore or something. She could play yeah, possibly, viol- possibly. Violin on that. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, I think we're at number one here. We are. So here we go. Go, John Bonham. Go, John Bonham. Go, John Bonham. Um, the Cranberries was Salvation. So I didn't really remember this song at all. Um, so I popped on the video. And the first image you see when you pop on the video for Salvation is this juggalo coom pinhead from Hellraiser clown. Uh, looking dude riding in a truck uh, in a scene that looks like it's ripped straight out of uh, like the desert marsh part of Mad Max Glory Road. Um, But we'll get back to that in a second. So the actual song is an anti-drug song, but it's like really obvious in the lyrics and it makes it really dopey. So like the first line in the song is, and you know, you got to think of Dolores O'Riordan singing it. She wasn't, she was in more straight rock mode, but uh, think of her singing this. She's like, to all those people doing lines, don't do it. Don't do it. Inject your soul with liberty. It's free. It's free. It's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of it is very almost like simplistic, say no to drugs type of lyrics, which is kind of funny. But then you superimpose that on the video, which is like also very 90s with a lot of 90s CGI in it and shit. So, Basically, the video is about a, the, and they never show um, the, 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 the protagonist, the girl. There's a girl in the video who basically is depicted as having drug addiction. The juggalo cum pinhead, I guess, represents addiction itself and how he's almost like this um, succubus type character dragging her into addiction. So... Mm-hmm. There's an older couple, presumably the parents of this girl, who are watching over her on a bed. Think of like maybe like a more direct version of Train Spotting's parents looking over um, 
you know, when, when he's in his, you know, detox scene in that movie. So she gets sucked into a starry whirlpool with CGI straight out of, you know, like Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun video where they're stretching out the images and stuff. So that kind of, you know, edgy at the time, but really cringeworthy um, special effects. So she gets sucked into a starry whirlpool, which I presume means addiction as well. And that's when you figure out, oh, yeah, the clown represents drug addiction. So and now he's the sort of quasi parent of the drug addict by way of addiction. So it's like, okay, but then the video goes off the rails and the clown comes back to the bedroom. She's back in the bed. For some reason, the parents who are older, they're like way older than I am. Like they're in their sixties and they're dressed up in cat suits and they're tied up on a chair for some reason. I mean, I guess that means how addiction, you know, handcuffs the people who would normally care and love for you, whether you were addicted or not. Why they're wearing cat suits is anyone's guess. But um, <laughs> I mean, for being an anti-drug song, the vi- imagery in the video makes you want to go out and do a lot of drugs. <laughs> so it's it's very 90s in a different way in the respect that they went way too far with some of the metaphors and all that. And they probably, you know, the, the Cranberries had just come off of, you know, their best period of chart success. So I'm sure they had a lot of money to play around with and, they threw it at a lot of really bad CGI um, graphics and stuff like that. And the, the Juggalo, Juggalo slash pinhead guy is actually sort of terrifying looking, to be honest. And I'm, I'm not afraid of clowns or anything like that, but I can see where somebody would be think that that represents the worst of drug addiction, I guess. So, yeah, yeah. But the song itself is, it's actually more up-tempo than most of the cranberry stuff but this is another band i was like passed by that point because i actually like their earlier mellow stuff and um they they you know that was probably atypical they were more of a rock band i guess so but this is their (laughs) last big hit and after this they were pretty much out of them so yeah so um hail to the irish i guess and they're okay. anti-drug songs. So, yeah. But that does it for this week. Yeah, yeah. So, what do, what do we have for next week? Next week, we're going to go back into the eighties because I'm because this is the eighties, and I'm down with the ladies, Matt. <laughs> okay. Although that has nothing to do with the year I picked. Um, we haven't done an album chart in a little while, so I decided to jump in on an album chart from a weird period of time. We're going to do June twelfth. 1982 album chart. Ooh. So, okay. We could be getting a lot of different uh, mixes of music because that was kind of the way things were at that point in the 80s. A lot of different genres mixing together. So, hmm. I have no idea. I have a vague idea of what's on it, but I figured why not? We haven't done that period in a little while. So, yeah, I'm kind of interested to see what's on there. Well, so. you'll have to tune in next week and see what. Um, I, uh, this guy named Matt and I talk about. <laughs> okay. Okay. So anyway, that's it for this week. I appreciate everybody uh-huh. listening. Yep. And let's see. Um, yeah, I guess that's it for this week. Yes. So. Say something wise to, to, to take us out. Uh, I can't think of anything, but 
see you in 82 everybody i'll see you in 1982 the bricks are watching me okay right. okay thanks a lot <laughs> yep